I pray that we will sense your presence and that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Really, really glad you guys are here. I hope you do sense the presence of God this morning. For those of you who are connecting online, we're glad you're connecting with us and we hope you sense the presence of God too. Ready? You ever taken a gut punch? I mean, just a real hard slug to the punch and you're not ready for it. Maybe you've doubled over, can't breathe. Maybe you wanted to throw up. Maybe a hit right to the solar plexus. All these nerves there and right behind it's the diaphragm that helps you breathe. It's intense pain. Maybe you're fighting for breath. Maybe you take a shot to the liver, to the kidneys. Body blows. They're not as sexy as a roundhouse punch, you know, that knockout punch. But they can be devastating. They can take your breath away, slow you down, take the fight out of you, cause you to drop your hands, expose your chin. Body blows. First there was COVID-19. They told people not to gather, including the church, so we went online, but it was still a body blow to the church. All churches, capital city included. Businesses shut down. Those that could moved online. People lost their jobs. Body blows. Schools shut down. When they reopened, the models were so hard on so many families and kids. More body blows to culture and to the church. Around us, the tensions kept building up. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Black Lives Matter, marches, demonstrations, riots. Racial tensions skyrocketed, attacks on the police. People grew even more polarized, more body blows to our culture and to the church, capital city included. Politically, our country was already incredibly polarized and the sides just kept hardening, drifting to the extremes. So the election season grows ugly, more body blows to the culture and the church as the polarization out there infects those in here. Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, a liberal icon on the Supreme Court, replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, a strong conservative. Some praise God, others raged against. Right before the election, next week, which will undoubtedly stir more anger and vitriol and division, right? more body blows to culture and to the church since everyone who composes the church is also a part of our culture and too often we allow its issues to define us. Now guys, I'm a terrible prophet. Bottom line, I'm terrible at it. This next part's just for you old guys. You younger guys won't have a clue, right? I'd have bet on eight tracks over cassettes. I'd bet on beta over VHS. I bet on CPM over DOS. If you're a kid, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. I'm still a terrible prophet. I thought the Cowboys were going to have a big year this year. Yeah. I thought they were going to have a big year last year, and the year before that, and the year before that. I'm a terrible prophet. But I fear many churches will not survive these body blows many churches and so many that do survive will be knocked off course worse than that 
Many Jesus followers, many Jesus followers have drifted off course and many have drifted away. So we are, we're in a rebuild mode here at Capital City. And when you rebuild a church or you rebuild a Jesus follower, you start with Jesus, right? So we have focused on Jesus, the way out, for the last two months. Now it's time to focus on the church, on his church. Maybe all these body blows will help us remember what the church really is supposed to be. Time to get back to the basics. Because, guys, it is not about what Capital City was. And it's not about what I want Capital City to be, and it's not about what you want Capital City to be. What does God want Capital City to be right now, right here? See, guys, when we think of the word church, oftentimes what comes to our mind is very different than what Jesus had in mind or the earliest Jesus followers. They didn't think of a building or an institution or a denomination or clergy, you know, holy guys like me. That's humor. You can chuckle. Here's what was on their minds. You see, something epic had changed everything for all of them. This Jesus had actually predicted his own death and his resurrection in some detail, and he pulled it off, which means he really was who he said he was, and he really could do what he said he could do, which was to give us a way better life in this world, a way to connect with God, and an infinitely better life in the next. It means he really is the way, the truth, and the life. And then Jesus commissioned his followers, Jesus' followers, to bring people face-to-face -face with Jesus any way we can. Now, I usually try to avoid throwing too much Greek at you in my sermons, but sometimes it helps. Some of you guys have heard some of this stuff before. In the Greek New Testament, because the New Testament was written in Greek, not English, the word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia, cool word. Literally means called out called out, right? It means an assembly, a gathering, a congregating of people in pursuit of a cause. People gathered for a cause. Jesus' followers were called out, gathered, assembled because something amazing happened to us and our cause is to share it, to live it out and to share it. But something terrible happened. We started as a movement, a gathering of people in pursuit of a cause, and we devolved into an institution, a denomination, clergy, rituals, traditions, and all that stuff. How did it get so messed up? Where did we lose our way? Well, Christianity started in the Roman Empire about 2,000 years ago, and for most of the first 300 years, Christianity was illegal. See, we refused to honor the emperor as a god, so we were illegals. We were often barred from positions of power. We were often ostracized. Sometimes we were stripped of our property. Sometimes we were charged with crimes that we did not commit. Sometimes we were even killed just because we are Jesus followers, Christians. And guys, that's still happening in some places in this world. And during those first three centuries, there were really not church buildings. We would gather, we would assemble, but in our homes, 
Worship would be very informal, maybe some songs, some scriptures, some teaching, some food. Maybe we'd share the Lord's Supper together. We did that weekly. And then along came an emperor called Constantine. And not only did he legalize Christianity, but he actually became a Christian. And all of a sudden, it became fashionable to be a Christian. We, we started coming out of hiding. We started building buildings to gather in because they were useful. Started becoming known something like churches. Inside our churches, we started a whole new set of rituals and traditions. We started wearing fancy clothes, started using processionals, choirs, incense, worship bands, special lighting, fog machines, and stuff like that. That's humor. Worship became more formal. Congregations started becoming spectators. We clergy did the important stuff up here. You get to watch and critique and maybe go to some other church if we annoy you too much. It was a shift. Ecclesia had become a building. It had become an institution, a church. It was not about a movement anymore. A people called out, called together, assembled to carry out a mission from God. It was about a place and a clergy and rituals and traditions. The Romans started calling their churches basilicas. As we continued to spread, time went on. The Germans called them Kirsche. The English borrowed the word, and we started calling them churches. And the church ceased to be a movement and became an institution and a place. You can lock the doors of a church. You can't lock the doors of a movement. Now, these changes were not benign. We were meant by God to be a movement And you see, guys, it really doesn't matter what I want the church to be, and it really doesn't matter what you want the church to be. What matters is what our God wants our church to be, right? We became more interested in meeting than moving. Our buildings and our traditions and our comfort became more important to us than our mission. We began to shift, to shift our focus from looking out to looking in, taking care of our own. Now, it's historically amazing that the Church of God, Ecclesia of God, survived the persecution of the first three centuries. But in reality, perhaps it's even more amazing that the Ecclesia of God has survived the institutionalization of the church that has happened ever since. Maybe. I hope that whatever these body blows do do to the institution of the church... They will not derail the movement. People gathered, assembled in pursuit of a cause. A few centuries ago, there were some guys who went through a reformation. Some guys in Europe believed the church had lost its way, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin. And they started making changes, kind of upgrades, tried reforming the church closer to what Jesus meant it to be. One of those reformers was a guy named William Tyndale, He was the first guy to translate the Bible into English directly from the original Hebrew and Greek. And he was the first one to get an English Bible printed on real printing presses because he wanted real people to read the real Bible in their own language. And guys, that was revolutionary. Well, this translation of the Bible, he tried pulling tradition out and putting God's dream back in. So instead of calling them priests, he called them elders kind of like what we have here at Capital City, 
Instead of penance, he called it repentance. Instead of church, he called it the congregation, the assembly, those gathered together for a purpose. See, he got it. It wasn't supposed to be about an institution. Jesus wanted to launch a movement. But the church pushed back hard. Tyndale was arrested, jailed, convicted of heresy, strangled, and his body was burned. Churches sometimes don't like challenges to their traditions. Unfortunately, the other reformers did not keep that part of the dream going, and pretty soon they were building their own churches. The movement started to fossilize into an institution. Aren't you glad we have a patient God? We get to start again. We do. We get to go back to the beginning. In fact, all of these body blows have given us the opportunity for a mulligan, a do-over, a restart. And we get to go back and look at what Jesus was doing when he launched his church. You ready? Steve took you to one of the key passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was actually there. He heard this take place. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're dead on. I am. That's what God's been trying to show you. And then he says this. He says, this is the rock upon which I will build my church, my church. Not even the gates of hell or not even death will ever be able to overcome it. My church, Jesus says, it's a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell can stand against it. Keep it out. Which means no matter who stands against us, no matter how many people die, no matter how, who dies, this thing is going to win. Church is going to win. It's not about a building. It's not about any of the things that would come to define it in the centuries after this. Well, not too long after this conversation with Peter, Jesus starts predicting his own death and his resurrection in detail, at least three times that we have record of. And he pulls it off, which means he really is who he said he was, and he really can do what he said he could do. He was, and he is the Son of God. He really is the way of God, the truth of God, the life of God. And then he gave us a mission. His Jesus followers, a mission. It was about gathering, assembling those who would follow him and sending them out with the greatest news ever. Point them to Jesus. Show the world what life with God, for God, God's way looks like and show them how to get in. Bring them in, he says. Now here's what he told the Jesus followers. Here's what he told us right before he leaves the planet for a while. He gathers the Jesus followers together in the book of Acts, and they're like, Lord, is it now? Are you ready to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? You see, they didn't get it yet. They still thought it was about kingdom building, nation building. It was old covenant stuff in their minds. Jesus says the Father alone has the authority to set dates and times. They're not for you to know. But you're going to receive power. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses Power, how cool. Power to do what? To be my witnesses. The power to testify to something that is life-changing. That's what the movement was about. That's what the cause is about. 
pointing them to Jesus. He says, you're going to tell people about me everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You're going to start where you are. You're going to go to places where you are uncomfortable, and you're going to tell people about me in places that are going to blow your mind. And they're like, well, okay. We can Jerusalem, a little bit scary. This is where they killed him, but it's home. Judea, it's all right. It's still our territory. Samaria, wait a minute. They don't like us. We don't really like them. The rest of the world, Jesus, are you serious? Do you have any idea, Jesus, how big this world is? <laughs> Jesus kind of chuckles. You have no clue. This movement is for every single person, every single place, for all time, which is why you're going to need my power to be my witnesses. And this little cluster of Jesus followers goes back to Jerusalem and they're all bewildered like and they start gathering together, assembling together, congregating together and praying together, waiting. And a couple of weeks later, something absolutely mind-blowing takes place. See, back then, they had what are called pilgrim festivals. That's when Jews all over the empire came back to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. Jesus was murdered during the Feast of Passover. That was one of these pilgrim festivals. This was about seven weeks later. It's the Feast of Pentecost. And there are these masses of people from all over their part of the world there in Jerusalem. About 120 of these Jesus followers were assembled together, gathered, praying, when all of a sudden it happened. This manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God kind of poured out on Jesus' followers. He's kind of poured out on us. And in this particular case, he actually gives the Jesus' followers the ability to speak the different languages of the people who'd gathered together in Jerusalem. And they started witnessing. They started telling people about Jesus in all of these different languages. They said, this Jesus who has been crucified two months ago is alive, and he's your Messiah. He's your Christ, the one you've been waiting for. People are bewildered. They're looking around. These are podunk Galileans. Just look at them. And now they're multinational linguists. What are they talking about? I mean, there are people here from all over that part of the world. Some of them have probably never heard of Jesus yet. And they say, we all hear these people speaking in their own languages, our own languages, the things that God has done. What's it mean? And Peter's like, I'm glad you asked. This is the big day. This is the day Jesus predicted. This is the day that the church was born. There was going to be a calling out. There was going to be a gathering, a movement, people with a cause, a mission from God. And Peter launches into this sermon in Acts chapter 2 that kind of explains what's taking place. He's talking to Jews, so he starts with their own story. He says, this that is happening was predicted a long time ago by our prophets in our old covenant. God told us the Messiah was coming and he told us that when the Messiah would come, he wouldn't only bring grace to the Jews, but he'd bring grace to the whole world, not just us. And then he said this, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus. God witnessed to Jesus. God testified to Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him. As you guys know, some of you guys were here. You know I'm being straight. You heard him. You saw him. 
And some of those guys are like, yeah, I saw him. I heard him. I saw him do some mystifying things. I heard him say some incredible things. Some of them probably said, I was there when he was arrested and flogged and crucified. Peter says, God knew this would happen. He knew it. It was his prearranged plan that was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. And with the help of these lawless Gentiles, you killed him. You nailed him to a cross and you killed him. You killed God's Messiah. You guys did. Maybe not physically, but your sins did. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back from the dead because death could not keep him in its grip. Peter says this, we killed him, guys. God raised him. We killed him. God raised him. God raised him, and we're witnesses of that. That's it. Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses and you're going to tell people about me everywhere and Peter's out there getting it done. See, the heart of this thing is pointing people towards something that really happened, something God did, something that changes every single man, woman, and child for all time. Peter says, you're my witnesses, guys. You're my witnesses. He was dead Peter looks at these guys and says, a lot of you guys can testify to that. Now he's not. And this isn't some fairy tale. It's not some fantasy, some myth. It happened right here in Jerusalem two months ago. We are witnesses. And exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus received from the Father this promised Holy Spirit, and he is the one who poured out what you're seeing and hearing right now. This whole thing is from God, guys. How else do you explain it? God's fulfilling his promises. Therefore, Peter says, let everyone in Israel know for this, this for sure. God has made this Jesus. God has made this Jesus. And now he doesn't pull any punches. He gets personal. He does it because grace without truth is not grace. He says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Some of you guys were there. Some of you guys watched. Maybe you... Maybe you didn't like what was happening, but you didn't defend him. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be your Lord and your Messiah. That's who he is. And I suspect it got quiet, really quiet, until someone yells out, what do we do now? What if it's true, guys? What if Jesus really did predict his own death and his own resurrection and he actually pulled it off? What if Jesus really did walk out of his own tomb three days later? What if he really is the Messiah? What if he really is the Son of God? What if he really is the way, the truth, and the life? What if it was our sins that he died for that killed him? Peter says, you killed him, God raised him. Where does that put you with God? Some guy yells out, what do we do now? Peter answers, go to church. That was a joke. You're supposed to chuckle. There were no churches. If you don't see the joke, you probably should read your Bible more. It's not what Peter said. 
Try to put yourself back into this event. Amazing stuff is happening. These guys, these Jesus followers are saying stuff that if it's true, it's not something you can marginalize. This is liar, lunatic, Lord stuff. What if it's true? What if this really was the big day for every single one of us? See, there are a lot of us, when we think church, we're like, well, I guess I haven't been to church in a while. I probably should go or my family needs to get back in church or I know I've been going to church, but maybe I should take it a little bit more seriously. And those kind of thoughts that we have wouldn't have dawned on them at all. It would have made no sense because the church at this time was simply a gathering of people who were on a mission from God. They had a cause to be witnesses to the most catalytic event in all of history. And guys, that is still the heart of the church. Here's what Peter actually said. He said, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, this promise, this promise of forgiveness and this promise of the Holy Spirit is not only for you guys, it's for your children and for all those who are far away. You know who these guys are? That's us. It's us. This thing, Peter says, it has begun here, this message, this cause, this power to be witnesses is for all those who are far off geographically, all those who are far off chronologically, all who are far off politically, racially, sociologically. And Jesus said, the gates of hell, not even death itself, none of the body blows that we have gone through will stop the ecclesia of Jesus. This generation may die. This nation may die. The capital city may die. The ecclesia of God will win because it's not about a building or an institution or a denomination or a clergy or anything like that. Isn't that cool? You know what happened next on this big day? They had an invitation hymn that went on for about 30 choruses, right? That's humor again. They didn't have an altar call where the preacher cajoled and coaxed and begged people to walk down the aisle. There was so much power in the air so much electricity. 3,000 people joined the cause, the movement of called out ones. 3,000. Do you have any idea how easy it would have been to kill the church day one, this day? Only one person. I mean, this is in Jerusalem, right? This is where Jesus was crucified. This is where he was buried. Anybody could have said, hold on, hold on. Let's go check out the tomb." They could have gone over to the tomb where his body should have been laying on a slab of rock. It's just two months. I mean, parts of it should still be there. Guys, if there was a body in the tomb, the church would have died day one. There was no body. So in the very city where Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, less than two months later, 3,000 people were baptized. How cool is that? How long would it take to baptize 3,000 people? We're going to get to see a baptism a little later on in this service. Is that not cool? That is great. If we had three or four of them, some of you guys would get antsy because you're going to miss the restaurants, right? 
We had one baptism at the creek. This may be a foggy memory on my part, but I'm pretty sure we baptized 34 people one afternoon. It was absolutely stunning. It was incredible. Nothing like this day. Day one, big day. And all day long, they're out there looking for water where they can baptize people because they're going to soak up all the water in little pools. People of all different kinds from all over the world. Some of you guys don't like big churches. You'd have hated this one. You're going to hate heaven too. On this day, thousands of people embraced the cause, the message. Thousands of people said, we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe he was crucified for us. We believe that he died in our place. We believe he rose from the dead. We believe these eyewitnesses. So we want to turn our lives around. We want to do life with God, for God, God's way. We want to be witnesses of what God can do. And the church, the called out ones, the gathered to go assembly of Jesus followers have been witnesses to this catalytic event for 2,000 years. You know what binds us together? What holds us together in common, in it's not the way we worship. It's not the style of music. It's not how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not the traditions that we cling to. If you were to take every single Jesus follower from any place in the world for all of history, they would have one thing in common. We are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We are the ones who believe that he died for our sins and he walked out of that tomb just like he said he would. And we believe that no one who comes face to face with Jesus can never be the same again. When you gather as Jesus followers, whether here or at home, when you're assembling as Jesus followers to worship and honor our God, you are the church. When you pool your resources to share Jesus, you are the church. When you reach out and try to serve our community as Jesus followers, like we did yesterday, did you know that we had about 635 kids, I think? Almost 1,200 people that went through our trunk or treat, and our people just loved on them. We were the church. When we gather together to help our kids, to serve our kids, to point our kids towards Jesus, you're the church. When you pool your resources and energies and gifts to plant clusters of Jesus followers, to strengthen Jesus followers wherever you are the church, you are not the church when you sit and watch and critique. You're not the church when you come just to consume or to absorb and to take. You are not the church. And the church is not about this building. This building is just a tool to help us gather. It's not about an institution just a tool. It's about a people knitted together. It's about a family of God, a people who've come face to face with Jesus and are trying to drag each other to heaven and as many others as we can with us. And listen to me, guys. There is nothing, there is nothing more essential to our world than the church, the ecclesia of God. The world's a mess. Our world needs Jesus. We have work to do. We're a mess. We're a messy people. Every single one of us needs Jesus. 
and Jesus changes us. He gives us a meaning and a purpose, and he gives us grace. You've been changed? And when you accept Jesus, Jesus calls you out. When you embrace Jesus, you are committing to a cause to bring everyone we can face to face with him and to drag him to heaven. You see, guys, this is not about rebuilding Capital City. This is about remembering who we really are. Are you in? One of the cool things about the Lord's Supper, I'm going to read you some words from the Apostle Paul, okay? It's about the Lord's table. Now just, just listen before you take. Listen. He says, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. He broke that bread into pieces, and he said, this bread is my body, which is for you. He said, do it in, remember, uh, in memory of me. And then after supper, he took a cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant sealed with my blood. And he said, whatever you drink it, do it in memory of me. And then he said this. This is the part I want you to catch. He says, every single time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you announce his death until he comes. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, you are a witness to who Jesus is and what he can do. Every time you drink this cup, Eat this bread. You are proclaiming, he's my Lord and my God. This is part of our witness. Let's pray together. Father, for your grace, we give you thanks. For getting sidetracked, we ask your forgiveness. And we ask that some of that power that you gave your disciples so they could be your witnesses. It'll be on us too. And now, Lord, with this bread and this cup, we give you thanks. And we commit ourselves again to your cause. In the name of Christ, we pray.